Heavenly Father, you've promised to speak to us when your word is read and preached. And we ask that you would speak the message that we need to hear as individuals, as a church. That you would comfort us with the gospel. That you would challenge us with the gospel. And that in all things we might together become more like Jesus in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage today is about theory being demonstrated in practice. If you can stretch your minds back to science class, perhaps when you were younger, you'll remember how your science lessons were kind of structured. They're all structured the same way, aren't they? The, the, the teacher would begin by teaching you the theory. So they'll put all the theory up on the blackboard and we would diligently copy it down into our notebooks, the theory. We'd then be sent away to go and uh, put that theory into practice to perform an experiment using magnets or maybe potato tubers or whatever, whatever you're meant to do in the, in the experiment. You put the theory into practice. But because we were cack-handed, useless teenagers, very rarely did the, did the practical ever produce the results that we were expected to. So at the very end of the lesson, the teacher would demonstrate it for us. The theory we had tried to put into practice, we failed, and so we needed a practical demonstration of it. There's an internet meme which went around recently. He might have been emailed it. Uh, one frustrated scientist. He may have been called John. We don't know. But he stuck this note to the door of his lab. He said, theory is when you know everything, but nothing works. Practice is when everything works, but you have no idea why. But in this lab, we perfectly combine theory with practice. Nothing works, and nobody knows why. (laughs) Well, Paul does not want that to be the case for the Philippians You might remember over the past few chapters, Paul's been giving out a lot of theory. We're citizens of heaven. We are to think with the mind of Christ. We are to shine like stars. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, Paul, this all sounds great in theory. But when I walk through those doors and I head home, and when I get back to work, in practice, I can't quite reproduce it. I struggle like that teenager in the classroom to put the theory into practice. And so in this passage, we're given a practical demonstration. Now I'm aware as it was being read, you might have thought, wow, this isn't a very exciting passage. We're just given the the travel plans of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Normally, Paul would leave these sort of details to the very end of his letters, and so preachers would normally sort of skip right over them and get back onto the meatier stuff. But Paul has very carefully placed this material here Because these men are tangible examples of everything that Paul's been teaching so far. If you like, they are the practical demonstration of the theory. So if you're here tonight and you realise you're struggling to put all the theory into practice, well, let's gaze at these two men. Let's look at what they do and learn from them. First, we're going to learn from Timothy. Timothy, who looks to the interest of others. Look down with me in your Bibles, verse 19, if you'd be so kind. Verse 19 on page 1179 says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
We began our series in, in Acts chapter 16. You might remember it when Paul enters into Macedonia. But just before the passage we looked at, Paul bumps into this young chap called Timothy. And uh, Paul takes him under his arm and brings him with him on the missionary journey, which means Timothy was there in Philippi on day one. Timothy would have met Lydia by the riverside. He, he would have met the slave girl who, you remember, had uh, that demon exercised out of her. He was there when the riots kicked off, and he was there when Paul and Silas ended up in prison. Timothy was there when the jailer and his family were baptized. So Timothy would have known each of these families in the church intimately. But now he's just heard devastating news. He's heard that the state pace of persecution in Philippi is getting worse and worse and worse. He's heard false teachers have entered the city and are confusing this church with people he knows and loves. And so much like we would if we heard a tsunami perhaps hit a coastal town where we have friends living. Well, so Timothy has genuine concern for these brothers and sisters that he knows so well. We can imagine Timothy's sleepless nights. We can imagine him tossing and turning, frustrated at being powerless to do anything because he's all the way over in Rome. There would have been a, a number of people Paul could have sent to the Philippians. But Paul says he has no one else like Timothy. Literally, it says, I have no one like-minded. Because whilst everyone else looks after their own interests, pursuing their own agenda, forwarding their own kingdom, no, Timothy looks to the interests of Christ. Now, I hope at the moment you're getting a little bit of deja vu. You're getting a little bit of deja vu. Because from what we've seen from this letter so far, perhaps the words like-minded, and maybe the words looking to the interests of others, maybe those ring some bells for you. If they don't, just glance back to the very beginning of chapter 2 with me. Uh, look at verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded. The same word. And verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's given them the theory. It's hard to put into practice. And so here is Timothy practical demonstration of this truth and it may be if we press pause there it may be you can think of people in your life who over the years have shown a genuine interest in your spiritual well-being i don't know i don't know who you're thinking of maybe you're thinking of uh, parents who who read the bible and prayed for you Maybe you're thinking of an old youth group leader who spent time with you in those critical years of your life. Maybe you're thinking of a church pastor who met up with you and discipled you. Maybe it's just me, but the people I'm thinking of in my head, I can't really remember so much about what they told me. But what I can remember is the practical demonstration of their life. I think of one guy, um, his name is Andy, another Andy. Um, he was one of my summer camp leaders. And, and, and at the time, I think he was just a university student. But every couple of months, he would write postcards to me, uh, encouraging me to live for Jesus at school, encouraging me to be different, even though I was one of the only Christians. And, and just this week, I've been thinking, what would have motivated him to have a spiritual concern for me in the sixth form of my school? What was he getting out of that? 
And he answers, nothing. And that's the point in verse 21, isn't it? For everyone looks after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I think the reason this camp leader took an interest in me wasn't because I was innately lovable. I'm not, as you well know. It's not because he saw my potential. He didn't, believe me. His concern for me wasn't emotionally whipped up inside himself or forced through gritted teeth or motivated out of guilt or personal benefit. The only reason I can think for Andy loving me was the fact that I'm loved by Christ. Christ's interests became his interests. Christ's concerns became his concerns. Christ's family was his family. So so may I ask, just at the end of this point, who do you have a spiritual concern for? Who do you take a spiritual interest in? Um, You might think, oh, my my spouse or my children or or my family. And and, and I was meeting someone this week who told me he he makes sure he gets home from work every single day just so he can read the Bible and pray with his children before before they go to bed. I thought that was lovely. I I hope you have a spiritual concern for your family. But do we have a spiritual concern for members of our small group? How might you be able to encourage them for live, to live for Jesus? Perhaps you uh, have a, a spiritual concern for, for newer members of our church, people who need discipling, people who need to learn how to pray, uh, people who perhaps wouldn't naturally want to come on the weekend away because they're afraid they wouldn't know anyone. They're the people who need to come. Who do you have a spiritual concern for? Well, my hope is that we would be a bunch of Timothys, that we would be looking to the interest of others. But next up, let's meet Epaphroditus, who serves to the point of death. Follow with me in verse 25, if you'll be so kind. Verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. We know a little bit about Epaphroditus. He was a member of the Philippian church, and his name kind of gives his story away. His name's a a play on the the Greek goddess Aphrodite, which indicates he's probably a convert from paganism in Philippi. But the church chose him, Epaphroditus, to travel all the way to Rome to support Paul, who is now in prison. So whilst he was named after a Greek goddess, this guy possesses the character of Christ. And notice how Paul describes him there in verse 25. Did you see that? Lots of descriptive words. He calls him my brother. So he doesn't consider him some random Philippian acquaintance. No, he was a cherished member of the family. He calls him my co-worker. Not just a messenger or a postman from Philippi, but but as we heard last week, a gospel laborer, someone with calloused hands for the gospel work. He calls him my fellow soldier, not just a nurse for Paul in prison, but a man who would willingly give his life in obedience to the gospel. Because in fact, that's what nearly happened. It seems that some way along the way to Rome, 
Epaphroditus gets seriously, seriously ill and he nearly dies. And the words words that Paul uses to describe what happened to Epaphroditus are very carefully chosen. They're deliberately, word for word, identical to the description of Jesus in the Christ hymn, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember how we heard how Christ was obedient to the point of death? Well, the exact same phrase is used. Epaphroditus served to the point of death. When we were looking at this passage on Monday, it was on a Monday at our staff meetings, we always opened the passage which we're going to look at on the Sunday. And Kerry, our administrator, she said how Epaphroditus is the very antithesis of a wimpy man. And I like that. Epaphroditus is the antithesis of a wimpy man. You probably know a lot of wimpy men. But here is a man who's not a wimp. Here is a man who's willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of of the gospel. Here is a man willing to put himself out for others. Here is a man thinking with the mind of Christ. And I'm delighted that here at St. John's we have a number of people just like this. People who would willingly give up their Saturdays to steam clean the chairs you're sitting on because normally they're covered in gunk and and tea and and bits of croissant. Someone gave up their Saturday to clean them. People who who give up their lunch breaks in the city to meet with someone in their small group to to read the Bible with them. We have people who might give up their Friday afternoons to help out at Orson. But I must admit, I'm always slightly nervous when I come to preach passages like this one when we're being challenged to be self-sacrificial in our service, I feel like I have to throw out a whole load of caveats and, and, and qualifications. Because I know what will happen. I know, I know that the conscientious few who already do so much, hearing this sort of message, they, they might end up taking on even more and then risk burning out. Whereas perhaps those who really need to hear this message, those who sit at the fringes and do very little, they're just quite happily carrying on thinking the hardcore elite will end up doing everything. I'm always nervous preaching passages like this. But in Paul's description of Epaphroditus, there are no caveats, no qualifications. He he doesn't paint him as a fanatic who probably went a little bit too far for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't tell the Philippians to make sure they don't overdo it like Epaphroditus did. No, instead he only commends this man for his self-sacrificial service. Look at verse 28. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and have less, I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for, for the help you can give me. It's right, isn't it, that when we have um, soldiers or sailors coming back from a tour, uh, having served in the armed forces, it's right that we honour them, that we give them a parade, that we we honour their service of us. And it's right that in a few weeks' time, at remembrance, that we honour the fallen, those who gave their lives for queen and country. It's right that we honour our soldiers. But as a church, Paul commands us here to honour those who sacrifice themselves for the gospel. Those who give up their lives in service, not of queen and country, but of the king. But the way we honour them is not through flattery or fawning over them, but by emulating their practical demonstration of the gospel. 
Now, at this point in, in the sermon, the preacher would normally pull out this wonderful story of a missionary, someone who's, who's uh, so convinced of their heavenly citizenship that they, they went to extreme lengths and willing to risk their life for, for, for the sake of the gospel. And I could tell you lots of stories like that, and I have done before. But my fear is, is that's so removed from so, most of our positions in life that it wouldn't really resonate with us. So instead, let me tell you, tell you about a guy called John Lang. You wouldn't have heard of John Lang. John Lang was in the construction industry here in the UK. He died in 1978, and when he died, his firm was one of the largest construction firms in the entire country. His uh, family business, I think it started back in the 19th century, but, but under Lang, it grew and grew into this vast company. Lang was a Christian. He was a man of integrity. So when he gave an estimation of, of, of costs uh, for, for a project, he always kept to it even if it was inaccurate and ended up costing his company. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of compassion. And back in those days, they didn't have things like compassionate leave. But Lang, whenever his workers, his builders, uh, whenever their wives were ill, he would give them compassionate leave. He was a man of compassion. But being a Christian, he saw himself first and foremost as a partner in the gospel. When he was in his early 20s, he made a vow that as his personal income increased, and it did increase, his standard of living would always stay the same. He never ever talked about his giving, but after he died, we know that he was a significant funder of what is now UCCF, the Christian Union Movement amongst students. He built a number of theological colleges and cathedrals free of charge all over the place. Apparently, he would drop into the UCCF offices every week, pop his head into the door and ask, have any, have any students become Christians this week? So it wasn't just a, a, someone writing checks and not caring. He genuinely cared. And he wasn't just a financial donor. Uh, he headed up one of the largest construction companies in the UK, but he led Bible studies every week in his church. He also led the Crusaders Youth Group. And apparently well into his 70s, he would go along to camp under canvas with the Crusaders in order to share the gospel with them. He's also bold in sharing his faith. He received an OBE from the Queen, that honour, and apparently when he was queuing up, lining up with all the other people receiving honours, he asked the person next to him, just as the Queen was walking along, are you ready to meet the King on the Day of Judgment? <laughs> fantastic, fantastic evangelist. When John Lang died in 1978, his firm was worth millions and millions and millions but he uh, died in a two-up, two-down terraced house with £381 to his name. He'd given it all because he couldn't take it with him. We sacrifice a great deal for our families, don't we? We sacrifice a great deal in order to get further in our business, in order to launch things off the ground at work. Can I ask you, what are you sacrificing for the sake of the gospel? Epaphroditus served to the point of death. Before we close, finally, I'd just like to take a little brief look at Paul. Paul, who has joy in partnership. Joy's been a pretty big theme of this letter so far. You might have heard that word again and again and again. We've first sermon, joy in prayer. We've had joy in proclamation, joy in unity, joy in suffering. And here tonight, joy in partnership. All that joy, and you might think Paul's a bit of a joy machine, that he might, he might be on something. 
At the very least, he's just one of these incessantly cheerful people. Well, this passage tonight, it tells us that's not the case. Paul was a man of sorrows. Here he was, he was in prison, he's on death row. The church leaders in Rome seem to have turned their back on him, in it for selfish gain. And now Epaphroditus, this messenger from Philippi, arrives half dead on his doorstep. And Paul describes his recovery as a mercy from God to spare him sorrow upon sorrow. Paul has a lot of sorrows. Now what would you do in that situation if you were him? If I was Paul, what I'd do, I'd gather around me every single faithful companion I could possibly find. I'd hold on to Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. I'd I'd definitely cling on to Timothy, with whom I'm like-minded, who served me as a son to a father. I'd definitely cling on to these guys, and I'd hold on to them for dear, dear life. What I definitely wouldn't do would be to send them away to serve another church. And yet, that's exactly what we see Paul doing here. He's sending out gospel workers, and not begrudgingly, but with great joy. Because he knows that their ministry and their practical demonstration of the gospel will be of more benefit to the suffering Philippian church than they will be for him. In other words, Paul cares more for their welfare than his own. Now, I close on this point because I think this is a truth we need to particularly embrace because of our situation here at St. John's. This is a highly transient area. You, you guys know this. Hardly anyone can buy houses around here unless they're millionaires. Which means most people in this church, they're only ever probably going to be with us three to five years, seven years max, before they perhaps move sticks and move elsewhere. And I know this is a cause of great sorrow for us. We, we build relationships. We invest in people in our small groups and then we just have to say goodbye to them, sending them off elsewhere. It's a sorrow, and it's a sorrow for Paul. But also we should see it as a cause for great joy. And my prayer for us is that we might rejoice at being used as a sending church, because we are uniquely resourced and placed to train up gospel workers, not just people who have all the theory No, but people who are actively, practically living out the gospel in practice and then sending them to live and work for Christ, whether it's in full-time gospel ministry, whether as missionaries abroad, or whether it's just to serve another church as a worker elsewhere. And like Paul, we don't just send anyone. We should rejoice to send our very best people. And I think that's what we have done. Um, you might know some of these names. I, I tried to back up an envelope trying to remember all the people we, we've sent out as a church, people I've known about. Andrew Marsh, JP and Sue Aaron Zuller, Paul and Jill Jump, David, and David Rue, Nick and Cherry Weir, David Lowry, Andy Latimer, Michael Dormandy, Mark Smith, Roger Ong, James Lapping, the countless Oak Hill students we've sent out, the many, many families who've been discipled here and now serving in churches elsewhere. We're ascending church, and let's not be sorrowful about that. Let's rejoice in that. But why send our best? Why would we send our best? Well, it's because God sent his best. And following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, as we think with his mindset, we look to the interests of others, like Timothy, 
and we serve to the point of death, like Epaphroditus. Let these guys be the practical demonstration of the theory. Let's pray. Father God, please help us to think with the mind of Christ. Him who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality of God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, give us his mind. Help us to think with his mind that we might be willing to look beyond our own interests and our own concerns and have an interest for others. That we might be willing to pour ourselves out in sacrifice for others. That we as a church might be willing to send gospel workers with joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.